This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell streaming live from our studio above a pool table in a bar. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing today, Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week going so far? Good now that I was able to help you figure out uh, whether your bagels are moldy. I didn't know your vision problems extended to uh, being able to detect mold on bread. Oh, I can't that see. That is rough. Yeah, yeah. How very... much mold do you think you've eaten in your life? Oh, Tons, probably, and I've probably uh, found out about much of it either after the fact or as I am biting into it at the very first time. Yes, it is nice to have somebody who can actually see color in your home. Otherwise, you can't have food in your fridge for more than three days without being very suspicious of it. Our Tuesday show is usually two hours long, and it will be again next week, but this week we're only doing a one-hour show today because I'm still having trouble adjusting my sleep cycle to our new schedule this past weekend over three nights three nights. I was only able to sleep about 10 hours total. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, not even a dozen hours of sleep. So I woke up yesterday exhausted, wiped out, tired. I I wasn't even sure if I could do or should do yesterday's show. Once I got to the office, I knew I could do the show, but I also knew that within minutes after it ended, I would probably fall unconscious, unconscious, pass out from fatigue not sleeping all weekend. After yesterday's show, I went home. A friend who unexpectedly visited this weekend and I expected to be gone by then was still at my place. He had to reschedule his rental car drop-off because President Trump was here in Chicago and my friend's drop-off point was right in the middle of the protest. That's why I blame Trump for me not being able to crash until a few hours after the show ended, after my friend left. But thanks to Trump, because my friend got me really, really baked. So he leaves, I collapse into bed, and since I left the studio yesterday, 28 hours ago, I have slept a total of 15 hours. I slept more in the last day than I did all three nights of this past weekend. While I ain't certain my sleep cycle is fixed yet, I'm sure that it's definitely recalibrating. After 23 years of doing a four-hour show on Saturday morning, recuperating from that physical torture for a couple, three days and working myself into a physical and emotional wreck to make up for the lost time I spent healing from the last week. All that said, we have been providing more This Is Hell this fall than we have ever, ever before during this season, which is what we promised with our new studio, More Hell, Less Hell, preempted by sports programming at WNUR. We're also still doing the show live, and you can hear it all at your convenience, at all times, at thisishell.com. So with our new transition to our new format, you are getting more and more This Is Hell than you have ever received before. Thanks, everyone, for supporting This Is Hell as we transition to a live weekday show. You can support This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Or by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, where we have a bonus show each and every week. This week on This Is Hell, yesterday we spoke with writer and musician Luke O'Neill, author of Welcome to Hell World, Dispatches from the American Dystopia. Luke's book is a collection of essays that he has posted at luke.substack.com. You can see his most recent writing there now. And if you like it, you can subscribe to support Luke's work. Luke, like This Is Hell, is completely audience-supported. That support gave Luke the freedom to write whatever he wanted, and what he really wanted to write was not what he had already published in outlets like Esquire, New York Magazine, The Guardian, New York Times Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Playboy, Slate, Vice, and many other outlets where his work has appeared. And there's no way any of those places would have published the scathing writing Luke features in his new collection and at his site, especially his work targeting the military-industrial complex and our failed two-party system that has led to endless deadly wars, making life in the U.S. more violent and creating a carceral state where we are all snitches. Your support gives people like Luke and shows like This Is Hell freedom. The freedom to do whatever we want without concerns of what our corporate overlords will think of us. 
or worse due to us because of what we have said or written. Big money, big business, corporations, multinational corporations, they have captured the press and built a prison for our public debate, walling off discussion within the parameters that support the bottom line. Set journalism free. Give journalism the freedom to do and say whatever it wants. Support your favorite fully listener or subscriber supported journalism outlet. It's the only way to take the power and freedom of the press from big money. Also on Monday's show, I dissected one of our longest running taglines. This is not the media. This is hell by describing exactly what kind of media we are not. Unfortunately, I also promised to tell you what media we are, which is a much more difficult thing, and I'll attempt to do that in a few minutes. Live from the United States, where many of our laws are criminal, and most of our criminals in jail have never broken the law. This is hell. Alex, at the end of yesterday's show, you announced and then posted the question from hell, which listeners can find and answer at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. This week's question is, what Halloween costume costume are you not getting in trouble for over this year? What Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? The person who we think has the best response this week gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring 25 interviews we've done during the 2000s. That's kind of like an introduction to This Is Hell. If you want to turn a friend onto This Is Hell, getting the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive is a great way to get others into the show, and you can go get it right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, do you have any responses to this week's question from hell yet? Yeah. What Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? Astrid N says, one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater looking to eat those peeps that didn't boo Trump at the ball game. Sean B says, dressing as an enthusiastic Justin Trudeau in blackface. <laughs> Precisely the kind of jokes I was hoping people would not say on here. Uh, Zach, I like how it's dressing as Justin Trudeau. That's the best part of it. Zach A says, a USA flag jumpsuit. The irony, of course, being the most disrespectful use of the stars and stripes is to cover my body. <laughs> Sebastian M says, a cat. Fabio L says, the scariest murdering bastard that never gets in trouble, a cop. And Gorilla G says, Epstein with a fake mustache. And you can leave your response right now at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up, one of the very criminal laws in the United States is the law regarding bail and who pays how much for what alleged crime to be freed from jail. The system is class-based, allowing rich people to walk and freely help their legal representation in the investigation into their alleged offense. And if it's class-based, you know it's race-based. Our guest in a few will be law, criminology, and criminal justice scholar and social scientist, Christine S. Scott Hayward, co-author of Punishing Poverty, How Bail and Pretrial Def- Detention fuel inequalities in the criminal justice system. We also get to one of the uprisings, one of the revolutions that's taking place in the world today that the establishment legacy corporate media refuses to cover. So which will it be? There are so many rebellions the media is refusing to cover. Will it be Ecuador? Lebanon? Chile? Who knows? There are so many revolutions the media hates to report, other than that Hong Kong uprising. They sure do like that one. Find out later which attempt at societal transformation that the media ignores, and we won't, will be featured later this week on This Is Hell. Of course, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. Listening live is better. Bumper stickers should be issued. This is hell. But yesterday, I was more focused on another tagline. This is not the media. This is hell. Only hack media analysts like me use the term the media without explaining exactly what is meant by the media. And if you don't know what I think the media is, then how the hell are you going to know what we are not when we say this is not the media, this is hell? Monday, I explained what we are not, and I made the mistake of ending with the promise of telling you today what we are. What we are not is easy, but what we are turns out to be a very difficult thing to define. To be honest, I don't know where to start without coming off as some arrogant jagoff, as an elitist condescending know-it-all, who clearly ain't that smart. I don't have any real idea of where to start describing what we are. I mean, we have the only so-so tagline, this is hell, we're not as much about current events as we are about current ideas, if that helps, and to be honest, I'm not sure it does. Uh, But it might. Like I was saying yesterday, it's not like we go chasing down whatever is trending and report on that, only to move on to the next trending topic the following day, leaving whatever was trending yesterday to the dustbin of history, never to be spoken of again, despite yesterday, the story being only 24 hours ago, the story being sold as incredibly important and worth hours of discussion and speculation and breaking news all over the place. 
I guess that means that This Is Hell is about context and believing that in order to understand any event, you have to have the event within some context, historical, cultural, within domestic politics or otherwise. The media far too often erases all context from every event they cover as it sees all history flowing in parallel vacuums, never intersecting with any other part of what has ever happened in history ever before, as if every moment is completely independent of every moment before that one. A perfect example, and thank you, media, for being so predictably regular in your ability to provide news stories completely lacking context but providing all sorts of unsourced reports and speculation, is the killing of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. While the media was celebrating the death of the ISIS leader, at no point did any network news outlet that U.S. Uh, state that ISIS is a creation of the unnecessary war the U.S. was misled into, a war that most Americans now believe was unnecessary. And had that war never happened, then ISIS, uh, ISIS would never have happened, and we wouldn't have to be hunting down human beings like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi as if they are dehumanized, some dehumanized prize to hang on the wall of the military-industrial complex's hunting lodge. In the media... There was no discussion of the history of ISIS, why it came to be or why it was defeated. And you would think that why they were defeated part may have come up as the reason they were defeated is because the Kurds destroyed them. The same Kurds the U.S. armed and then last week turned their backs on after telling them to blow up all their defenses so they didn't appear to be as much of a threat to Turkey which made it much easier for the Turkish military to kill more Kurds, the same Kurds who helped defeat ISIS, the Kurds who helped the U.S. find Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. None of that context was provided. The context showing that this was an unnecessary assassination caused by an unnecessary war that has now made the U.S. a roving global assassination team, killing whoever we decide we should die. None of that was ever mentioned. It's as if nothing mattered but that a person was dead. I take that back. Something else did matter. The media demanded to know how Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was killed. I get it. It's part of the questions you are supposed to ask as a reporter. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. But why the focus on how? What difference does that make? If Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was shot, stabbed, bombed, or poisoned to death, what difference does that make? It doesn't make any difference. But the media loves the sensational, and they particularly enjoy putting their audience in the position of being sympathetic with killers, with murderers, imagining themselves as they commit the targeted murder of someone who has been determined to be an enemy of the United States. Let's just be grateful that no other nation has such a policy, and their targets are those in the United States who are viewed as enemies. Can you imagine if the government of Turkey had such technology and policy? How would we react if Turkish special forces stormed and the Turkish and uh, Turkish military jets bombed the Pennsylvania compound of suspected 2018 coup leader Fethullah Gulen? That's the type of context you will never hear in the media. When the U.S. conducts military exercises just outside the border waters of North Korea or Iran, does the media ever ask how the U.S. military would react if 200 miles off U.S. shores foreign militaries conducted U.S. invasion exercises? But the media sure does love those death, death details of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and the gorier they are, the better. The problem is the media never revealed who their source was for all the details around Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's death. And we know who the source is because they're the only ones with intimate knowledge of the killing, and that's the military. The military prides itself in being objective or at least trying, or I'm sorry, the media prides itself in being objective or at least trying to be objective. Exactly how objective of a source is the military and how they conduct their killing business? The military does whatever it can to cover up war crimes, and even when they find war crimes, they rarely judge any of their service members to be war criminals. Look what what just happened in the case of the SEAL, who clearly seemed to be guilty of war crimes. That guy got so close to being found guilty, he or maybe his wife started posting online about the corruption within SEAL leadership. Why take the military word for granted in what happened when it conducted a targeted assassination, the kind of assassination that up until a few years ago was against the law for the U.S. to commit? But in the wake of 9-11 and the U.S. becoming more monstrous than ever, allowing for torture, for instance, the U.S. now commits targeted killings of perceived, of perceived enemy, enemies anywhere, anytime around the world. At least in the past, the U.S. would feel shame and try to cover up those killings. Now the president 
speaks proudly and without shame about conducting murder, and Americans cheer him on the fact that they just paid someone to kill for them. Trump tweeted after the killing of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, we have declassified a picture of the wonderful dog that did such a great job in capturing and killing the leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Trump also said at the Police Chiefs Association meeting yesterday here in Chicago that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead as a doornail, receiving cheers from the audience of police chiefs Chiefs who probably wish they could order the assassination of their enemies, too. Keeping in mind that we still don't really know how Osama bin Laden was killed, and Seymour Seymour Hirsch brought up all the doubts and explained what likely really happened when we interviewed him on This Is Hell most recently, and you can hear that interview on what really happened in the assassination of Osama bin Laden by searching on Hirsch. H-E-R-S-H at thisishell.com. It's very likely that the story we're being told today about Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is not true or at the very least misleading in some way to make the military look as good as possible. And when three children are killed during the assassination attempt, there's plenty of reason to cover up any uncomfortable facts. Even if you are interested, for whatever weird fetish reason you might have, of exactly how Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was murdered, have some patience. Wait it out. You don't have to buy into whatever propaganda the government is likely doling out right now. The media could wait a few weeks, gather all their sources, and get evidence and information to share. So what's the rush? The rush is the media wants to be the first to cover events, not the best at covering events. The media never goes back and explains how it was duped or what it reported that was wrong. The rush is if the government and the military can get their story out first, then that will be the end of it. The media, more than anything else, wants to be the first eyewitness to history. That first report usually becomes the way in which most viewers and readers understand that, st- that story moving forward. It's that first draft of history that the media wants to write, and they never want to go back and write up a second draft. That is, unless it's decades later and the powerful people responsible can no longer be held accountable as they are long dead. This is not the media. This is hell. But exactly what we are, I'm not completely clear. But I can tell you that we are the media that doesn't revel in the assassination of a perceived threat to the United States who was created by the United States. Hell, we don't glorify the murder of anyone, even bin Laden. We are the media that thinks justice is far better than for democracy, for history, for your own safety and security than violent, even deadly revenge. We are the media that considers the context of events as they happen, not believing each magically appears out of nowhere. Is it any wonder that immediately following 9-11, so many asked, why do they hate us? Well, if you had been listening to This Is Hell before 9-11, you would have known why they hate us and, like me, believe that 9-11 was inevitable. We are the media that doesn't fetishize anyone's murder, sensationalizing it with evidence that more than likely will prove faulty in the very near future, enforcing a storyline that is not only inaccurate but false, sold to the public as propaganda, propaganda the media cannot wait to disseminate. We are the media that does not glorify or believe there is such a thing as a war hero. The real heroes of any war are the people who make it so that war never happened, who made certain that a conflict would not occur that will kill more non-combatants than combatants, that makes certain war crimes, that would make it so certain war crimes don't happen, or the weaponization of rape, including the rape of children. This is the media whose members do not strive for fame and celebrity more than fairness and accuracy. This is the media that doesn't move on to the next story, erasing the last from history in all possible contexts that might impact events moving forward. This is the media that is nothing more That is the media, I should say. That is nothing more than shills for the wealthy and their corporations. No, this is not that media. And not that I fully know exactly what media we are. We still are. This is hell. I'm your host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. Coming up, the process of attaining your freedom by paying your bail is racist, classist, and completely unfair. Later this week, we'll cover one of the many revolutions the media is not, and we'll have the moment of truth from Jeff Dorch. And this week's question from hell is, what Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? Leave your answer at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The person who we think has the best answer for this week's question gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring 25 interviews we've done during the 2000s. If you want to turn a friend on to This Is Hell, getting the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive is a great way to get others into the show. And you can find it right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Your eyewitness to grief. This 
is hell. Did you know that most people in jail right now are not in jail because they have been found guilty of committing a crime? And did you know that the vast majority of those yet to be found guilty of their crime are in jail because they cannot afford bail? That's right, our overcrowded jails within our state of mass incarceration are filled with people who've not been found guilty of any crime than any other crime than being poor. Here to explain to us exactly how unjust the justice system that we practice truly is, social scientist, law, criminology, and criminal justice scholar Christine S. Scott Hayward is our guest and co-author with Henry F. Fredella of Punishing Poverty, How Bail and Pretrial Detention Fuel Inequalities in the Criminal Justice System. Welcome to This is Hell, Christine. Thank you for having me. Christine is Associate Professor of Law, Criminology, and Criminal Justice at California State University, Long Beach. She's also a uh, former uh, fellow of the Supreme Court of the United States. And you can follow Christine on Twitter at C. Scott Hayward. C. Scott Hayward. You quote at the beginning of your book, you write how in 1964, U.S. Attorney General Robert Kennedy testified before a subcommittee of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee to advocate for legislation reforming the bail system of the United States. He began his remarks by saying that the rich man and the poor man do not receive equal justice in our courts. And in no area is this more evident than in the matter of bail. How much has bail changed since Robert Kennedy testified that the rich man and the poor man do not receive equal justice under bail? Well, a lot has changed in the bail system, but I think that what he's saying is still accurate. Um, For the most part, um, uh, an individual's income is not considered by courts or judges when they are making the decision as to whether somebody should be released pending trial. And so you have situations, uh, one of which we, we highlight in the book involving, you know, Robert Durst, who uh, uh, was incredibly rich and was accused of murder and had um, bail of $250,000 uh, set in his case. Um, he made it clear that his intention uh, the entire time was as soon as he paid the bail was to, to jump bail um, and disappear. Um, so something like that um, is not an option for most of the people who are involved in our criminal justice system who tend to come from the uh, lower socioeconomic classes. We were talking with Andrea Ballestero about her book on water as a right or a commodity, and she mentioned how many organizations have put the humane price of water at 3% of a household's income. Is there a humane rate for bail to be fair to all not matter so it doesn't have an impact as much based on uh, them being poor or rich? Can we make bail equal for all by having some sort of 3% bail type of system where everybody pays the same amount? Um, no, I mean, I think what you're, what you're referring to can, can, can work in other areas of the criminal justice system. For example, day fines are used in um, certain Scandinavian countries where instead of a flat fine, um, a percentage of your income is used instead. Um, but in the bail system, I mean, we think that we should just eliminate cash bail in its entirety. Um, there's very little evidence that shows that, you know, by, by placing a certain amount of cash with a um, court, that that somehow in incentivizes you um, to show up. It's sort of counterintuitive at some level because I think in this country we're so used to that being the system um, that we don't realize that we could release most people on what's called their own recognizance, meaning they just promise to show up um, and most of them will still show up. So then what explains why we continue a bail system if most people will still show up? I think in your writing you point out that it's something like 4 to 6% of people are actual flight risks of the 100% of the people who are uh, being held on bail. So that means 94 to 96% of them are being held on bail when they shouldn't be. So what explains why that continues if they are not a flight risk? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on. First, let me just say that there are two sort of allowable constitutional reasons for detaining somebody pretrial. One is um, if they are a flight risk, and and it's important to sort of um, break that down a little bit. So there's two things going on here, right? One is uh, a risk of non-appearance, right? So a risk that you're just not going to show up at your your court date. Um, Another is a risk of actual flight, right? Like Robert Durst, right? The the desire to leave the jurisdiction so you cannot cannot be found. Um, And then the second reason that you can detain somebody um, is as a result of the 1984 Bail Reform um, Act, which uh, is a federal piece of legislation. Um, If you are, you know, basically a risk to public safety. Excuse me. Um, And so uh, 
part of the reason I think why so many people are detained pre-trial is that judges are loath to sort of make the high-profile mistake, right? Judges tend to be risk-averse, and so they don't want to be in the position of having been um, the judge who released the individual um, pending their trial, who then went on and committed a high-profile crime, right? That occurs in a lot of um, um, in a lot of other areas of, of, of criminal justice in terms of sentencing, et cetera. Um, but another reason I think, and we highlight this in the book, is the sort of dominating power of the commercial bail industry, um, which exists in, I believe, I think 47 or 48 of, of the um, jurisdictions in the country. I was going to ask you if there's any evidence that without the bail system, we would have that society would be any less safe or secure. And I think that you've already touched on the fact that if these people aren't flight risks, well, does does it make it so we're any uh, more safe or secure? Because uh, that would be one of the intentions of bails to keep people who are potentially violent criminals off the street. Does Is there any evidence that makes us any more safe or secure? There is probably a small um, amount of violent crime that is prevented by detaining, um, uh, you know, certain numbers of people. Um, we cite the work of a couple of scholars um, in the book showing that maybe, you know, one and a half percent um, of, you know, people who are predicted to um, be at risk of, co- of, of um, committing a violent crime while on pretrial detention, while on pretrial release, um, actually do commit um, a violent offense. There are a couple of offenses, I think, that they found... Um, murder, robbery, and rape. So people who are charged with those offenses, they tend to be um, at a higher risk of reoffending. Um, but, but it's hard to say at an aggregate level. And remember that, you know, because, of course, criminal justice is local, um, the systems in all of the different states um, um, are different. So, yes, there probably is a certain amount of um, public safety protection that is caused by locking up people who do pose a serious risk of committing a violent offense. But as, as you mentioned, I think you alluded to that 4 to 6%, the vast majority of people who are denied bail are not being denied bail, or sorry, the, the vast majority of people who are being held in, in pretrial detention are not held because they've been denied bail, they're held because they can't afford to pay bail. So I think we, we tend to think a lot about that sort of small percentage of people who are locked up because they do pose a risk, whereas the vast majority of people who are locked up are locked up because they can't pay the bail that was set in their case. How much of those, how much of that situation do you think is guided by the fact that we may exaggerate recidivism? Um, it, it depends. I mean, I'm not a hundred... The problem is that there's so many different measures of recidivism, right? right and so right. you can measure recidivism based on rearrest or reconviction or reimprisonment. And so, yes, I think there is a certain portion of that there, um, particularly with those risk assessment tools and the data that use arrest um, as a measure. Um, I'm much more comfortable with using reconviction as a measure, um, despite the fact that you know some criticize that measure because maybe it underestimates. But I would rather an underestimate than using a measure like rearrest, which you know is, as you can imagine, is is dependent on policing practices in, in, in many states. So I asked about the safety and security of society, and I don't want to make sure that I don't frame all my questions through that mm-hmm. position of the people who are outside of jail. So how much is the safety and security of those who are charged with a crime violated when they are detained? How safe is jail or halfway homes or wherever those who cannot afford j- bail are held? How safe is detention for those who have not yet been found guilty of a, any crime but simply can't afford bail or the bail has been uh, not allowed for them? Well, you know, there's not a huge amount of of, of research on um, the safety of, of jails. What we do know comes from, you know, some sort of larger reports and then also some media investigations that have, have been excellent looking into sort of rates of, um, you know, suicide uh, and other rates of victimization in jails. And we know that they're not nice places, right? So, for example, um, Rikers Island is one that's mentioned a lot. You know, hopefully that is going to be closed um, soon in New York City. Um, but we, you know, the, the kinds of cases that we hear about, the Sandra Blands, the Khalif Browders, um, so many individuals end up being, um, uh, you know, victims while they're, while they're in jail. So, you know, I'm not saying that all jails are, um, are dangerous, but certainly they tend to be less safe than prisons. There, there tends to be uh, fewer resources in terms of medical care, both um, physical and uh, mental health care in jails. Um, and they're not designed for um, people to stay uh, a long time, right? Remember that if you think about the difference between jails and prisons, jails are supposed to be, for the most part, places where people who are sentenced um, for a year or less. Some people end up spending, you know, multiple years in jail 
pending trial, um, and they don't have the services there that they might get if they were um, in prison or, of course, if they were out in the community. Yeah, I think that's something that people don't don't realize about jail. It's not like you get yard time. It's not like you get a library. It's not like you get a medical facility. It's a lot worse. And I think here in Chicago at Cook County, I could be wrong, but you can spend up to 15 years in county jail here in uh, Cook County. So it's a pretty horrible time in jail. Uh, You write the United States remains one of only two countries in the world that continues to utilize an extensive system of money bail for those awaiting criminal trial that is dominated by for-profit commercial bail uh, agents. Are there other types of bail systems that are not as extensive as the U.S. or are not dominated by for-profit bail bonds companies? And are those systems more fair, ones that the United States might be able to use as a reform? I mean, I think yes. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, if I mention Canada as a, as a good example, I'm sure some Canadian scholars will point out many of the flaws in the Canadian system. Um, but Canada uses a different system of, of sureties where, um, a, you know, an individual will vouch for um, another individual. Um, uh, the UK does not utilize um, commercial bail. And, and all of these um, countries tend to have lower rates of pretrial detention. Um, they still have problems, um, and I think many of those countries are also also moving in the direction of, of um, making release decisions um, based on risk. Um, we haven't found sort of one perfect system, right? Um, you know, as, as, I, as we mentioned in the book, the book focuses on the U.S. Um, we've done a little bit of research um, on what happens in other countries, but there's nothing that sort of stands out um, as being sort of the, the model system. And I think that's partly why um, we're still experimenting in individual states, trying to figure out what the, the best way um, what the best direction to take is. You know, you see the federal system uh, where there is no cash bail um, and where release rates um, tend to be, um, uh, or originally tended to be higher. You know, the District of Columbia is held up as as a good example, right? They have a robust system of pretrial services, but even those systems um, aren't perfect, right? There are probably people who could be released um, there uh, unconditionally who are actually released um, subject to a variety of conditions, um, which may actually make it harder for them to, uh, you know, go back to their everyday life when they're on, on release. So we know what to compare the U.S. justice system to. What is the other nation that does, like the U.S., have an extensive system of money bail for those awaiting criminal trial that is dominated by for-profit commercial bail agents? No, be the Philippines, right? (laughs) So uh, you want to tell everybody what kind of government the Philippines has? (laughs) Uh, That's that's not my area of expertise. I'll 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 leave people to to Google that, and they can draw their own conclusions. Wow. So, uh, well, you know, Trump said that he does admire Duterte, so that makes sense. You write the overwhelming, (laughs) but I I want to make sure I, I, I want to step back for a second. This isn't Trump's fault, correct? Correct. All right. This is not Trump's fault. This is a system that has been around for a very long time. Are we on a trajectory of more and more depending upon cash bail and having this system be more racist and more classist? Is that the trajectory we are on right now? I don't think it is. I think this is over the last, you know, since I started getting interested in this and, you know, I, people sort of say, you know, how did you get interested in, in bail? And it was when I started teaching criminal procedure and I was teaching this stuff and it just made no sense. Um, but that's, you know, six, seven years ago. Since that time, a lot of progress has been made, right? So um, one example is New York, New York City, which um, uh, is about to sort of, I think the legislature may have actually just passed um, the reform legislation there, but just due to, um, you know, higher profile attacks on the system, judges there have actually um, changed their practices. So, for example, it used to be, I think, that about 50% of all people uh, in New York City um, were released on their own recognizance. Over the last couple of years, that's gone up to 75%, and they actually have much higher um, reappearance rates than other parts of the country. Um, New Jersey has abolished cash bail. Uh, Courts in um, Alaska and Maryland have made progress. Um, And California passed uh, legislation last year, which, um, as we mentioned in the book, uh, will be on the ballot um, next year to see if that will go into effect. Um, Risk assessment tools, and, you know, as we mentioned in the book, we're on the fence a little bit about whether those are, you know, a move in the right direction or, or not, um, uh, that, you know, aim to be sort of less racist and classes are being implemented. So I actually do think that we are moving in the right direction. There have been some court decisions that have helped people who've been criticizing this issue um, 
organizations like um, Civil Rights Corps um, and, and other organizations have been pushing for reform. And so I think this is one of those areas where there is a positive trajectory. Unfortunately, you know, those reforms that we're talking about are happening in a few states and not all of the states. Right. These are not federal reforms. These are state-by-state reforms. Can, Correct. What can the impact of the end of cash bail keeping in mind that this is a state-by-state determination, not a federal determination, what impact can that have on mass incarceration across the United States? Oh, I think it could have a huge impact, right? So one of the things that, um, uh, you know, we we have a chapter in the book where we focus on the the impact of bail um, and one of the, or or right detention in general, one of the things that we know is that people who are detained pending their trial are more likely to plead guilty rather than going to trial. They're also more likely to plead guilty earlier. Um, And if they do plead guilty, they're more likely to be sentenced to incarceration. And if they receive an incarceration sentence, they tend to be sentenced to a longer term of incarceration, right? So if you reduce the number of people who are detained, chances are you're going to see fewer guilty pleas, fewer convictions, and thus fewer, um, fewer sentences. Um, if you look at uh, you know, the Philadelphia DA, a progressive DA who was elected um, last year, has been publishing data um, on their website about um, uh, some of the changes that they've made in terms of not asking for cash bail, just releasing people for certain low-level offenses. They've seen dramatic drops in their um, uh, jail population. Uh, New Jersey has also seen um, drops in their jail and prison population as a result of their reforms. So I think there is a direct link, and that's one of the arguments we make in the book, that there's a direct link between our current um, or the, you know, at least the policies that have existed up until the last year or two are current detention, pretrial detention policies and mass incarceration. You cite the New York City Criminal Justice Agency supporting the proposition that pretrial detention is so unpleasant that it pressures those accused of crimes to plead guilty in order to escape the conditions of confinement. But this mm-hmm. is kind of contradictory to me. Why would you plead guilty to escape the conditions of confinement when that guilty plea, doesn't that just send you back to those same conditions of confinement? Well, because often when you're pleading guilty to an offense, you might be pleading guilty um, to a misdemeanor or something where your sentence is going to be time served, for example, right? So you may actually, in the short term, be released um, from prison, uh, from, sorry, from jail. However, you know, that may result then in a probation sentence. You may have trouble, fix, you know, um, uh, meeting all of the conditions of your probation, ultimately you may end up going back to prison. Um, but these these guilty pleas, sort of, you know, when you're when you're making those kinds of decisions, you know, I've never been in that position, but I understand that when you're in that position of sort of deciding whether to, to plead guilty or not, you're thinking that you're going to get out, that the short-term consequences, you know, are, are are sort of more important. So yes, you know, many you know many times, you know, you are pleading guilty and you are going to go back into the same conditions, but you know, it, it doesn't always seem that straightforward a decision at the time. As somebody who and is... Many, and many... Go ahead. So I was just going to say, and many times it is a time-served, um, it is a time-served sentence, and so you may actually be released that day. As somebody who has gone, gone through this process, I can tell you uh, that, that plea bargain is a real, it's a real winner. You write, unlike their television counterparts, bail determinations in real life often do not involve defense counsel arguing on the arrestee's behalf. It made me start thinking, and you were talking about law and order, how misleading, how much are we misled into believing about what bail is by TV? What are misleading perceptions that we have because of what we see on TV? Well, I think, you know, we, we, we reference shows like Dog the Bounty Hunter in the book. We don't spend a lot of time on it, but anybody who has watched um, A&E or any of these these um, uh, bounty hunter shows has this perception that you know the people who are sort of jumping bail or who are fleeing are these dangerous individuals who are going to pose a risk to society. So first, I would say most people who don't show up at court are not showing up at court because they're trying to hide from court. It's that you know they forgot they had a hearing that day, or they were trying to get to the hearing but you know they can't drive and the bus wasn't working or, you know, reasons that, you know, I think many of us could could understand. And so there are ways to prevent that, right? So one of the promising practices that we refer to in the book is making telephone calls or sending a text message reminder to an individual that they have a hearing. Um, uh, 
Hennepin County, um, so Minneapolis, just um, you know ended an experiment, or not ended an experiment, but presented the results of an experiment showing that they had much higher rates of appearance after they enrolled um, pretrial releasees into this reminder program. And now the entire state of Minneapolis is actually going to adopt that system. Um, so I know I diverged from your question about public perceptions, but for example, that that is that is one area. Um, this idea of bounty hunters as being the um, sort of solution to a, a problem um, is, is a little misleading because, you know, as I said, there aren't that many people who are jumping bail who need to be taken down by, by bounty hunters. And you, you write how defendants who utilize the services of a bail bond company are required to pay a non-refundable fee, and in exchange for that payment, which is usually tied to a fixed percentage of the overall bail amount assessed by the court, the commercial bail entity guarantees the defendant will appear in court, usually by posting a surety bond uh, underwritten by an insurance company. If the accused mm-hmm. fails to appear as promised, the bail business is, in theory, responsible for paying the full amount of the bail to the court, although that rarely occurs in practice. So are commercial bail companies not taking as much of a risk as it would seem? And if commercial bail companies don't have to cover the entire bail, why do citizens? Um, <laughs> so to the first part of your question, no. The, uh, the, this idea that um, bail bonds uh, agencies or, or bond agencies can take this amount of money to compensate them for the fact that they, they are you know, at this risk um, is not the case. Uh, we mentioned the book, and there's there's a great um, uh, report. I'm missing the name of it right now. Um, that that focuses on sort of these massive insurance companies who underwrite the bail industry. So a bail agent, you know, just as an example, might you know have a client who signs a contract saying that they are liable for the entire amount of the bail, but right now they only have to pay the certain 10%, and then that's deposited with the court. Um, if that person does not um, uh, show up for or for a, for a hearing, and the court demands the money. Um, that client is liable for the money, and the um, you know it's usually a family member. Josh Page has done some really interesting research showing that it's often um, the women in a male defendant's life who are the ones who you know will sign these guarantees. There may be wage garnishment. There's all sorts of ways in which the, the, the agency can try and get that money. If they can't get the money, they can go to these funds where they have paid a sort of a percentage of that 10% into, and they can get that money back. Um, if there's not enough money in there, um, you know, <laughs> the insurance companies will reimburse them. So it's a very um, small risk for the agencies themselves. This is a $2.4 billion um, industry. Um, and I believe the, the, the book talks about how the, the risk to the individual um, insurance companies is, is incredibly small um, compared with insurance in other areas like property um, or, or um, auto insurance. What impact do you think profiteering has on bail? If there wasn't a business profiting off bail, if, say, the government was the bail bondsman instead of a private agency, how might bail be different? What happens to bail when you take the profit incentive out of the threat of holding people in jail until their trial date? Well, I think one of the direct things that that happens is you actually allow for reform, right? So one of the things that we see is that bail um, agencies and their representatives um, oppose reform um, at every level that they can. So at a local level, um, as we saw in Broward County, Florida, um, and at a state level, as we've seen um, in California. And now I should point out that you know people have criticized the California legislation from both the right and the left, but at the same time, it was the bail industry that prevented that from from going into um, from going into effect. Um, I'm not 100% sure what happens if you if you take the, the, the for-profit out of it, but still have the cash. Um, that is the system that you have in in Illinois. Um, but I've heard sort of anecdotally that it's you know it's it's not <laughs> it's not all it's cracked up to be, and there are still you know many issues with bail in in, in Illinois. Um, it's just that the the bail companies aren't involved in it. You write that the commercial bail industry is known for its corrupt and predatory practices. What makes mm-hmm. commercial bail such a site for corruption and predatory practices? Um, it, you know, it's not as regulated as, as other industries. Um, the corruption that, I mean, most of the, the corruption um, that, 
um, that we, we talk about in the book is sort of from the early days, but there still exists practices like, and these are some of these things that are things that Josh Page has talked about, um, where there are individuals in jail who don't necessarily want to be released, right? They don't want one of their, um, I mean, they might want to be released, but they don't want to be released if the reason for their release is going to then be that they have a family member who is on the hook for this money. Um, uh, agents will trawl for business anyway, right? They will sit in court, they'll look at who the individuals are who, um, you know, have been detained, and they w- then they will try and track down family members um, for those individuals to try and get them uh, released. Um, not because they, you know, some of them will say that that's because they care about the individuals, but, you know, the ultimate result might be that, you know, somebody is now on the hook for a bail amount of for an individual who would much rather have just stayed in jail so that their family member wasn't in that situation. You write on any given day there are nearly 744,600 persons in jail, not prison, approximately 60% of whom have not been convicted of any crime. Approximately 90% of those pretrial detainees had a bail amount set but were unable to meet the financial conditions required to secure a recent release. So most mm-hmm. people in jail have not been convicted of a crime, and the vast majority of them are in jail because they are too poor to afford bail. How do mm-hmm. you feel the public would view jail and those who are in jail differently when they understand it is not a place of, you know, convicted criminals, but a place of mere suspects who happen to be poor. Right. I mean, I think there'd be a much different perspective. I have my students, I think, are often shocked when they realize that. I mean, I've had students who, you know, who tend to be very sort of pro-police, pro um, sort of, you know, the criminal justice system, thinking that it's not as unjust as perhaps some of the liberal critics make it out to be. And they hear that and they're sort of surprised. Right. And they think about the conditions that maybe they might think are okay if this person has been convicted of an offense, but this is somebody who has just been charged um, with something. And I think that, you know, my students are probably representative of a large portion of the public, right? They would be surprised. They would not tolerate, I think, and would be much angrier about hearing those kinds of cases. Um, I mean, I think when the the case of Khalif Browder, which we describe in the book, it was, was a case that just shocked so many individuals and probably is, you know, a leading um, catalyst for the reforms in New York and around the country. People were shocked to hear that a young man could spend more than three years um, in jail um, on the word of one individual, you know, um, and so I think that I think that cases like that um, would, you know, help change the minds of individuals. We've seen that in other aspects of the criminal justice system, you know, with respect to, for example, wrongful convictions. When people start realizing, oh, actually, you know, people who are convicted are not always guilty. Maybe that we should reconsider our, our views on the death penalty, right? You know, I, I think we, we, we don't always place a lot of trust, I think, or faith in individuals to make informed choices. But, you know, when they, when they have this information, I think that it can help. And, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens in 2020 when the reform legislation goes on the ballot in California. You write bail decisions also depend on what scholars refer to as situational justice, a subjective series of factors such as how the defendant appears, acts, responds to questions, and the like. Note that the use of situational justice might lead judges to make certain judgments about defendants based on demographic characteristics resulting in racial, ethnic, gender, and sexual orientation disparities in bail decisions. How much justice is in situational justice, because situational justice to me sounds a lot like the imposition of whiteness and white privilege. If you act (laughs) like you're white, I mean, you know, right away, start acting like you're white. As soon as you come in, then you may have a far greater chance of being let go on your own recognizance or your bail might be reduced. So how much justice is in situational justice? Yeah, I mean, I think that that definitely varies depending on where you are. I mean, for example, um, you know, when we, I, I was, I was quite surprised when we sat in on bail hearings in in L.A. County and Orange County, um, that it did not even seem we we didn't see that sort of thing, right? We didn't see sort of people being treated differently based on on how they looked. We just saw a complete lack of 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 consideration of all of the individuals who who were in there, largely because you know they're all in a cage, um, basically um, at the side of a courtroom, um, and the judges is not 
speaking directly to an individual. They're speaking to them sort of through a microphone, through a big, you know, sheet of what I presume is 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 bulletproof glass. Um, but other places, that's that's very clear, right? And we know that you know there the the research um, that's been done by um, so, you know some scholars in in Philadelphia show that there is this perception amongst you know judges that black people are more dangerous than white people, right? And so. Um, if that's the case, then that might explain why, you know, black people are, you know, given um, more likely to be detained. And if they um, are given cash bail, are more likely to receive sort of a highish, higher, um, higher level of cash bail. Bail to me sounds like the presumption of guilt. Is this mm-hmm. guilt before proven innocence? And if this is guilt in, guilty until proven innocent... Then why is this support? Why isn't the Constitution? Why haven't constitutional attorneys? Why haven't the Supreme Court ruled that this is unconstitutional because it presumes guilt? So um, yes, I might agree with you, um, but it um, even though we call it punishing poverty, pretrial detention is not considered to be punishment. Right? It is considered to be sort of an administrative process. Um, Unfortunately, our Constitution doesn't directly protect people. So, you know, people think of the Eighth Amendment. You have the, you know, the right against excessive bail. It's in there, you know, with with um, with excessive fines, et cetera. Um, however, what that actually means, right, is is not clear. What we know it means is that you don't have a guarantee to bail, right? So there is no guarantee that you are released pending trial because pretrial detention is not punishment. Um, and all it means is that, you know, bail can't be higher than necessary to ensure your appearance in court. But what does that mean, right? There's no requirement given the fact that um, one reason that you can be detained is um, because you pose uh, a risk to public safety. Um, there's no requirement that courts look at ability to pay. Now, that is beginning to change, right? So we, we talk in the book about how strategies um, for um, – you know, getting the federal courts involved have moved away from looking at the Eighth Amendment, excessive bail, to the Fourteenth Amendment um, guarantees of of due process and equal protection, right? So the idea that there have to be procedural um, protections in place before an individual's liberty can be taken, um, and that similarly situated people should not be treated differently. And so there has been, um, there have been a few cases um, uh, in California, um, in in other states where uh, successful lit- lit- excuse me litigation has been successful challenging the use of things like bail schedules, right? So a bail schedule is something that looks a little bit like sentencing guidelines. It has a list of all of the offenses and a list of what's referred to as a presumptive bail amount. Um, and the presumptive bail amount sort of looks like um, uh, you know it, it's correlated with severity of the crime. Um, and these are usually put together by by judges in the particular jurisdiction in which they are used. Um, bail schedules were actually originally um, uh, put in place to sort of give uh, people who were accused of a crime a quick way to get out of jail, right? So instead of having to wait, you know, maybe three or four days for a court hearing, they could just post an amount of bail and then be released. What we know now is that they're actually often used presumptively. That's the way that they um, were used in um, excuse me, in California, and that's the way that they're used in the O'Donnell case. In, I'm blanking on the state's name, apologies. <laughs> um, but in the, in the um, O'Donnell case that went to the um, 11th Circuit. Um, and so courts are basically sort of saying, oh, you're accused of this offense. This is what the bail amount is. Now you need to, be, um, now you need to, to pay that amount. Um, and, and, and there have been some states that have said those, uh, some, some courts that have said, you know, that's not constitutional, right? It is a violation of the due process and equal protection clauses to detain somebody um, just because they are poor, right, because they aren't able to pay that particular uh, amount. So there is some progress. We haven't yet seen any of those cases reach the Supreme Court, um, but there have been a couple of circuit court decisions that have been favorable. I just love the idea that spending time in jail is an administrative process because yeah, uh, right. <laughs> it's, it's friggin' jail. You know, it's jail. You don't sentence somebody to 20 years of administrative process. I, it just, it's, that's incredible to me. That's 
that exceptional, yeah. uh, you know, exceptional language of politics that for some reason we tolerate. I'm not too sure why. You write judges yeah. to this day concern themselves not only with a criminally accused person's flight risk, but also with the danger that person poses to the community if released on bail. This is true in both the federal and state systems. Troublingly, however, predictions of future dangerousness typically amount to little more than unreliable prognostication. So how do judges fill out their minority report? How do they figure out the future to determine dangerousness? Yeah, and they they often don't have a lot of information to make those decisions. So the one advantage of pretrial um, services agencies is that those individuals will go do, you know, they will do interviews with family members. They'll do interviews with employers. They'll interview the client. You know, they will gather a lot of information. They'll do a risk assessment um, on the individual. Um, And so they will be able to provide some actual information. And and that's why I think, you know, many reformers have sort of said, yes, this is the way to go. Um, Without that, you know, there you know, judges are basically sort of looking at a few facts that they have. I mean, and, and as we said, a lot of the hearings are short, you know, a couple of minutes long. They don't have the information on which to make their decision. And so what they're looking at typically is the seriousness of the offense and the criminal history. So if an individual, you know, has, uh, you know, a, a few prior convictions and maybe is accused of a, of a violent offense um, or something that looks like a violent offense, then a judge is going to, you know, not take the risk um, of releasing them and is going to set a high bail, hoping that the, they will end up not being able to make it and will stay in prison. In and, jail. and you point out how sometimes the judge only has access to an arrest record, so they don't even know if these people, if the person who is in front of them has been convicted of a crime. All they know is the arrest record, correct? Yeah, but in some cases that's true, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, and who are the people who are arrested more often and less often? So there you go, do the math. Right. What impact yeah. does bail have on the entire criminal justice system. Um, I mean, I think I already mentioned the, the the impact that it has on sort of the the mass incarceration, and I think that's the the most direct effect, right? The, the the it is the first decision that is made, and it is sort of the beginning of a series of steps that will will impact, um, you know, both the number of people um, in prison and then who who ends up being in prison. And so we know that. The you know you're more likely to you know the, sorry that not that you're more likely I don't want to <laughs> start trying to predict things myself um, but that the prison popu the the percentage of people of lower socioeconomic um, classes in prison is much higher than of higher right um, and a lot of that comes from the fact that you know those individuals are likely to remain free um, pending trial they can afford to hire um, perhaps a, a good attorney um, they can demonstrate that they are a responsible citizen while they are out. Um, in the community, right? And I think that's a key reason why um, people who are detained end up getting more serious um, sentences. They have nothing to show while they've been in prison, while they've been in jail waiting for trial, right? Nobody cares that they behaved. Nobody cares that, you know, they did their work assignment. Um, if you're out in the community, you can show that you went up, went um, to work every day. You can show that you went to school, that you've been taking care of your responsibilities, that you haven't gotten trouble again, right? So you already have an advantage. Um, and I think that's one of the main um, the main ways that, that this impacts um, the overall criminal justice system. We have been speaking with social scientist, law, criminology, and criminal justice scholar Christine S. Scott Hayward, who is co-author of Punishing Poverty, How Bail and Pretrial Detention Fuel Inequalities in the Criminal Justice System. You can follow Christine on Twitter at C. Scott Hayward. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Christine, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Is money the problem with justice in the U.S.? And if so, how do you get money out of justice? How do you get money out of bail, especially when this is a capitalist system that is in the depths of financialization and neoliberalism? Is it even possible to get money out of bail? Um, I think it is. I think there are states that have done it. I think that we are at the point where we will see if it truly is. So let's see how things go in New Jersey. So far, so good. It's been, I believe, almost two years since they got rid of cash bail in all but you know a teeny tiny percentage of cases. 
Um, if they can somehow um, come out of this without any increase um, in the number of um, offenses committed by people on pretrial, if they can come out of this with a lower jail population and a lower prison population, then I think it will be a good case study to show the rest of the country that we can do this without compromising public safety. Because I think that's the concern of everybody sort of who's involved here, right? We focus on fairness and we care about the criminal defendants um, themselves, but in order to pass reforms through um, local and state government, we need to be able to demonstrate that those reforms aren't going to negatively compromise public safety. And so if states like New Jersey and you know, New York City can demonstrate that's the case, then I think we, we do take a step towards getting rid of money from the system. Um, and I think that, you know, can't argue that that would be a good thing. I'm just glad that I have your phone number. So now the next inevitable time I get arrested, I can call you for bail. Well, I'm only licensed in New York, so... <laughs> oh, so now i got to get arrested in New York? I haven't been arrested there yet. There you go. <laughs> Thank you very much, Christine. This is a fantastic book, and I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for being on our show. And thank you for having me. All right, take care. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I'm also a race and gender traitor. and very proud of it. This is Hell. Alex, do we have any more responses to this week's question from Hell, which is, what Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? Oh, yeah. And uh, speaking of getting in trouble, uh, Mike M. says, Lewis Blackface. I just put on a suit and scream at Republicans. <laughs> Let's uh, let's all stop making blackface jokes before uh, I get in trouble. Uh, uh, Jeff C says anti facial recognition masks. Adam, right. Adam A says sexy disgruntled PG and E customer. I can't get in trouble since no one can see it in a damn blackout. <laughs> uh, Marty P says woman Kurdish fighter. Uh, two more responses to the question from Hell, which is what Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? David T says Justin Trudeau in whiteface. <laughs> now that's good. And uh, finally, who's that again? That was uh, David T. All right. And then finally, Amaryllis F says, "White guy." <laughs> That's a pretty good one too. So Justin Trudeau in, Trudeau in white face, which is usually, you know, that's his default. Do you know that? We've covered the whole spectrum of responses. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. Got to remember that one for tomorrow when we're considering who the winner is of this week's question from Hell. Leave your answer to this week's question. At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, the person who we think has the best response this week gets the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring 25 interviews we've done during the 2000s. That's kind of like an introduction to This Is Hell. If you want to turn a friend on to This Is Hell, getting the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Drive, Flash Drive is a great way to get others into the show. It's time for listener feedback. When we posted yesterday's show where I explained uh, explained what This Is Hell Is Not. And we spoke with Luke O'Neill, author of Welcome to Hell World, Dispatches from the American Dystopia. When we shared that interview on Facebook, KH left a comment at our Facebook page stating, this was effing fantastic. By the way, uh, really appreciate you putting asterisks in those letters so I could say effing. Uh, I don't know why you did it on Facebook, though. I will continue to be a Patreon member for as long as I can. This was a prime example. Your interview with Luke O'Neill was a prime example of why I love This Is Hell. Every week you all produce some of the best interviews around. Keep up the great work. Thanks, KH. And I thought I'd finally have the freedom to be profane on our online show, but that's not turning out to be the case, and it's getting me effing upset. On Patreon, I did a monologue about the police, and I gave a list of slang terms for police. I told Patreon subscribers that I could not share a certain very profane slang term, and that Urban Thesaurus actually asked me twice if I wanted to unblur the word to read it. Twice. It said, do you want to see this word? And I said, yes. And it popped up another box saying, are you sure you want to see this word? That was the first time I've ever seen that online. So I told Patreon subscribers if they wanted to know that slang term, my favorite, by the way, for cops, I would email it to them only if they agreed to never unsubscribe from Patreon after reading the most choice slang ever for the police. Listener Dan was curious and emailed, hi, Chuck. Please share the profane slang for police. I promise to never withdraw my tithing support of This Is Hell on Patreon unless capitalism forces me into an even greater poverty than I can imagine. Thank you. By the way, I love how our target demographic, (laughs) people who are broke, it really helps out our bottom line. Uh, So we sent the term to Dan, and to the best of our knowledge, Dan's still a subscriber. If you are curious and can promise to never hold me responsible for the dissemination of this 
genius term that is also very, very offensive. Email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Finally, in this week's listener feedback, we got a guest suggestion from Alexander, and not the Alexander on the other side of the glass for me. Hey, Chuck, many thanks for an amazingly informed and substantive radio show. My best regards to you and the whole This Is Hell team. I'm listening to the episode Online is Writing Us at the moment, and I came to think of the book Filling the Void, Emotion, Capitalism, and Social Media by Marcus Gilroy Ware. So I'd like to suggest Marcus as a guest on the show. The book was thoroughly well-written and researched and nuanced and really informed my outlook on social media. Many thanks. So the episode that Alexander is discussing, the one that he's referring to, is our show with Richard Seymour, where we discussed his book, The Twittering World, that the social industry, about the social industry uh, that consumes us all. And if fi- filling the void, emotion, capitalism, and social media by Marcus Gilroy Ware is anything like Richard's writing, then we want Marcus on the show. So thanks, Alexander. That's listener feedback. Email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio and direct message us on Twitter at thisishellradio. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday night meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon tomorrow in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, This is Hell Office Hours is a drink and think. Join us any, each, and every Wednesday evening, including tomorrow evening at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. Alex, who is our guest on tomorrow's Wednesdays, live, one hour. This is Hell beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Brie Busk is back on the show. We're talking to her live uh, from Santiago, and she'll be talking about her Roar magazine piece, Chileans Stand Fearless in the Face of Repression. And then we're back here at 3 p.m. again, uh, Chicago time, on Thursdays for our bonus show that you can hear by becoming uh, Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, did all the lights just flash, or did I just have a stroke? Yeah, yeah it's been happening. Oh, really? Yes. That was not the first time it's happened? I have noticed it a couple different times. Mm. That's uh, bad? Mm. That's not good. It's <laughs> not good. Uh, and so we're going to be announcing tomorrow at the end of the show what our Patreon uh, interview is going to be, the classic interview that is unavailable online anywhere else that we're going to be sharing with our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And I'll tell you what next or tomorrow's uh, or the Thursday monologue is going to be about as well. Again, the question from Elle is, what Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over this year? Leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, so you might have a chance at winning the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this morning's or this afternoon's show, and thanks to social scientist, law, criminology, and criminal justice scholar, scholar Christine S. Scott Hayward, co-author of Punishing Poverty. You can follow Christine on Twitter at C. Scott Hayward. There's a, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.